<laughs> I'll take that whipping. Well, we got into the 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 uh, wonderful discussion of certifications because that's kind of on top of everyone's mind right now. Why is we're that? All, well, because Salesforce has their new certifications. Some people are still trying to complete the path under the old certification path, and there's others looking to that are there are others that are doing the beta exams. Of the new... You mean Salesforce pulled the rug out of under people? I'm shocked. <laughs> we're all at different stages of this process. Some didn't, of us didn't are... they just change the partner requirements again? I thought um, that you have to increase your number of certifications by it's like twenty or thirty percent. I, I thought I heard twenty five percent. I'm not sure where I heard that. Maybe I heard that from you. I'm just like, what about the what about you know the little three man consulting shop that boutique that just wants to stay small and stay badass? Well, if you got three right? people, then only like a third of a third one of you has to have a cert, and that's it. Well, what if you're, you know, at a certain tier in order to keep that? In the, they're raising the requirements for staying in the tier that you're already in. So that means you either have to add people or somehow maybe add certifications if you don't already have them all. Uh, well, I mean, that's probably it. I mean, <clears throat> I don't think Salesforce is, is kind of ch- doing a chopping block here, but I think I think if you're a certain level and you want to stay in that level, I'm sure you can talk to Salesforce and say, hey, we're getting there. We, we're doing this, this, and this. And Or what if you're just like, no, we want to stay a badass little three-person consulting shop? That people love, that you know, not one of these things you just th- throw warm bodies at because people need a giant project <laughs> with just tons of billable hours. Well, I don't know where we're going it's, with this it, conversation. Is it not supposed to be about customer success? Well, I don't. Or is that just all BS? But that wasn't that wasn't the crux of our. Uh, that wasn't what we were talking about. We're just, I'm just trying about, to get you going here, John. We're just talking about the certain, <laughs> trying to get you amped up. <laughs> wait, this is, we're doing a show here. We're we are recording. Oh no, wait, should I start recording now? Oh, we're not recording. No, we are. Oh. We're always recording. I'm always recording. Always be recording. Yep, that's why I have so much blackmail material on you. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that was a joke. No, it's not. <laughs> anyway, no, so. we're, we're just talking about certifications, and and actually, it opened up a. We were debating, and then at some point, I think, I think it it got to a point where we're like, man, we should, this this is good podcast material. We should we should debate on the show. Not an interview, because you know I know what? you don't like interviews, but I, I think we should open up the floor for people that are passionate about a topic that that either want to debate us, like they could vehemently degree, disagree with us and, or have a different perspective. Uh, I vehemently disagree with your pronunciation of vehemently. <laughs> <laughs> I've only had two beers today, I swear. <clears throat> <laughs> uh, but no, I, I, I think, you know, I'm not a fan... I like having other people on because I like their perspective. And I think I agree with you, though, at the same time, that I'm, I don't think we should be doing a lot of interview shows where we're just kind of having someone on, asking them questions, and trying to promote something. But I do think there's value in trying to bring in someone on who has a different perspective and wants to debate us on it. Yeah, I just I don't know if that's our format, like, if that's our thing. Like, you know, there's, know. Cer- there's certain podcasts, right, that always do interviews, and that's just their thing. And there's certain podcasts, like, it's just two people that talk and that's all it ever is. And like, it would be weird if there's all of a sudden there's an episode where that's not the case. And it wouldn't be the end of the world. I don't know. I'm not, no, I'm not saying it should be a new format where every week or once a month we do it, but I think there's, there's, there's a, something to be said for, for saying if, if you can make the case that you want to debate us on something. Yeah. That we can set that up. We might be able to, yeah, we'd, we'd consider it. Although I I would like to see more, I feel like um, we probably do a bad uh, bad job of of um, of 
communicating this on a consistent basis. But the way, if you want us to talk about these things, info at gooddaysirpodcast.com. Yep. Info. Okay. Send your questions there if you want us to talk, you know, answer questions or discuss things or if you have a topic. If you want to be anonymous, just say anonymous. If not, we'll mention your name. But that would be, that's a good place for something like this. I agree. But, but I do, I do like the discussion on the Slack though, because then that's when I, that kind of informs my opinions, gives me some context on, on a topic. And then I can kind of from that, I, I don't know, I feel like I, synthesize what my opinion is on something. Yeah. And I think, I think more specifically to this particular debate that we had um, with, uh, I guess I could say his name. It's in the Slack channel. That's public. Mr. Mr. Chuck Liddell. It's always fun and amazing that um, (laughs) as busy as he is with his, you know, fighting schedule and everything that he can make time to drop into the Slack channel. (laughs) Yeah. No, but we, we were actually coming at the certification topic from two two different perspectives and each kind of digging in our heels in terms of, you know, the value that certifications have. Um, I'm coming from a, from a perspective of a developer, someone who doesn't have very, very many certs, but has a lot of experience in the Salesforce world. Um, and, you know, and, and I, I, I kind of rest on that. I rest on the fact right. that I have so much experience. I rest the, on the fact that... I'm sorry, I'm keeping it around. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, you're one of these guys that your experience and... Um, your your work for your customers precedes you. Like they couldn't give a crap what certifications you have. But to they, that point, I don't think do you, it's not, it's not, I don't think customers know me. And that was actually one of the arguments that was made: is that <clears throat> well, you're well known, you're an MVP, and you do this podcast. And I'm like, yeah, but no, no. Well, I'm not going to name any names, but I'm. I know you have clients who you do regular work for who wouldn't probably have anyone else do this work, yet they do not give a crap what your certifications are. Yeah, and in fact, you know, that customer, uh, that main customer that we're referring to um, is a repeat customer mainly because of the work I have done and that I've demonstrated. I mean, this customer... I mean, have this, they ever, said John, customer have be- ever said, John, we're really going to need you to up your certification count because <laughs> even though you do killer work that literally probably we couldn't find anyone else to do, we, we really need you, you know, we need to know that you are you know, click and button, button click, you know, platform <laughs> certified. Uh, well, maybe. You you're never going to hear that. Uh, again, this is, and you know, I were just chatting about this before we started recording though. I mean, there's this fake economy around certifications. Salesforce makes the sort forces a value on the certifications by making the partners get them. And, so, and that, since that's how the partners compete against each other, now all of a sudden there's this false economy around certifications. That everyone now everyone has to go out and get them because they're valuable. Yeah, and I agree. It's and a pay, it's a pay to play. I agree, and I I don't think anyone's arguing that. In fact, I'm going to try to play some of Chuck's arguments. He's not here to defend himself. Um, in, in that you and know. By the way, let me say that I I'm not saying that people shouldn't go get certifications. It may be a synthetic, you know, value around them, but there is value around them. I mean, if you want to work for a, a partner, you better go get your certifications. But I think our, so I'm our, not saying don't get them. And I I think. I think our argument has always been, you know, it. it's hard to say this, but I, I, th- I think our argument has always kind of been that they're not that valuable. They're only valuable to Salesforce and to partners. 
Um, but I think what Chuck was trying to illustrate is that they are valuable to people in the community outside of part in, in, outside of partners who want to maintain a certain tier status and outside of Salesforce who want they they actually use those as some kind of metric as some kind of sorting mechanism in the resume. Right or wrong, whatever their methodology mm. is for yeah. trying to find okay. and hire good people, right. it is valuable to them. And, and that's the point he was trying to make to me. Okay. And that I was kind of counter arguing because I was coming from the perspective of, well, does a cert make you a good developer? I have I have you know some Microsoft certs that I've long lost, forgotten about and never renewed and all that kind of stuff because everyone told me at the time, oh, you need a Microsoft cert. And yeah, I mean, some of the just, without a doubt, best software engineers I know have no certification of of any sort whatsoever. In fact, some of them don't even have CS degrees or even that kind of background, yet they are killer software engineers. And are you really going to, is that, is that, that's going to be your filtering mechanism to, to whittle down a stack of resumes? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I know you have to have something, right? To, to filter down, but boy, I would just be really careful. You're going to be throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I, I think that was kind of my caution was that, you know, I agree certs are important. They can be valuable and and I'm not saying don't use them and I'm not saying don't get them. But at the same time, I wonder if, if this community is kind of created a bubble around itself where they care about certs, they care about people that know Salesforce and they're forgetting about good developers, good good business analysts, good people who can be really great consultants that maybe know nothing about Salesforce, but they're good at what they do, which right. is analyzing a business, analyzing requirements, architecting systems and solutions across yeah. a spectrum that that involves where Salesforce is just one piece of it. Framing and decomposing problems. Yeah, exactly. And, Hell, I mean, I, I I didn't wasn't I'm not Salesforce first. I was C sharp web application three tier business application developer, whatever term I was using at that point in time. <laughs> Do you remember three tier? What was that? Oh, yeah, well, three tier. Yeah, yeah. See, application, desktop, server. UI. You, no, UI was one on, yeah. on the top end. The bottom end was a database in between. I don't know what. The, just some. I guess your. Uh, I guess there was some service layer, or some com object model layer in between there. I don't that was a disaster. That, yeah, I don't remember what comprised a true three tier application anymore. But like, like you want to implement implement your website in. And decom <laughs> objects. Well, here's what the funny part. I think at the time I considered myself a three tier developer, but I really had no clue what a three tier was. Well, I, I, all I knew is that I had a UI, I had a service layer, and I had a I had a business logic layer. I think, and then there was a database there, and I think I called that three tier. Well, that sounds like four, but it that's pretty. It good. does sound like four. If but you had a service layer and a business layer, that that's pretty advanced. Well, yeah, I, I mean, you had the service layer. That well, here's what happened to me. People wanted to use the application. On like uh, when they were tunneling in to the network VPNs, yeah, and that had like you couldn't do when you're on the network. You can like push tons of data back and forth, no problem. Oh right, right. But then once you go remote across a VPN, yes, the thing would and, it would crash. Well, and that's when you realize if you if you use something that has a really chatty protocol, like wasn't SQL Microsoft SQL Server like super chatty? Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, back in the day or something. Yeah, in fact, that's why the service layer came about because my service layer at one point was just store procedures. I would call the store procedure, it would turn data. <laughs> and so then I had to stick like another layer in between that that would take the data, make sense of it, and you know produce smaller chunks to send back to the client because people were wanting to use this while VPN and the performance yeah. was horrible. I mean, there's certain protocols that were never meant to be used over a wide area network. Or yeah, exactly. The well, plus and then there's a, there's the security aspect of it too because you had to, you had to open up a port in order to be able to communicate directly with the database, even across VPN, you had oh, to have yeah. a certain yeah. port. And then there were there were just 50, viruses everywhere. Fifteen thirty three. What was the? Yeah. <laughs> I remember. Um, one of my this is kind of a, one of my first professional programming gigs. This was, had to be in the ni- late nineties, I guess. And this company was a, it was a Microsoft shop, 
And this is probably when I built like one of my first product configurators. And it was an ASP. I don't think it was .NET. There was no .NET at the time. It was ASP. Um, was was the website that I could run this on. Mm-hmm. And I implemented the configurator, like the the core logic of co- just a configuration engine in a in a com object. And so I had ASP. What was it? The code? What they called it? Code behind? I guess the ASP code behind. I think it's so. Like where you could just hang. What was it? I think it was VB. On, I think I it was. It was, v- it was only VB. Yeah, at the time. It was VB, and that would call into this com object I had that would do all the configuration logic. And I'm sure that was probably the worst. And was way. the com built built on VB or was it built in C? Because I think com. I, no, I think I built it in VB. I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. I don't think I built it in C. I mean, I I knew some C and I did some C, but I don't think I did this in C. Yeah, because that, that was always fun when you try to cross VB into C, the C world, or I the did, C plus world, more specifically. I did build some COM stuff in C, and that was a giant pain in the ass. It was, because the data types didn't match up. Like, a, a long wasn't a long. It was, the, the, they just weren't, they were different. And you yeah. could get memory leaks everywhere, and it was, was just crash. Does anyone remember I Unknown? Yeah. Do you do? You do? Yeah. Okay, well. Uh, I remember I saw someone with a, an I unknown license plate. And I'm like, what a nerd! Wow. <laughs> yeah, there were there were a couple. Well, you're of, a nerd too for recognizing it. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. uh, we need to add. Yeah, we need to add like some stuff from the nerds movie. You know, where the guy just screams nerds. God, can you laugh like that one guy? <laughs> oh, <laughs> wasn't us. Sorry. Um, uh, so, okay, I'd, I'd see that... I, I want to bring this up now so because I, I don't forget, but you were, uh, in addition to Chuck Liddell, you were talking with uh, Charlie Jonas. And this it ca- ca- calls back to our lunch discussion about... I was asking about promises in Apex. And Charlie's got a, a, um, an, a, a, a prom- an Apex Promises library. Now, there's a newer one... And this is what this is how I discovered this. I saw it yesterday. Somebody tweeted. I don't remember who it was. I'll have to find it. They wrote like a. They just released released it yesterday. A new Apex Promises library. But then I found Charlie's, and I'm trying to look into these libraries. And, and I'm asking you, I'm like, are, they, are these Apex or JavaScript? No, it's Apex. It's totally Apex, and it's Promises and Apex. And and my question to you was like, I was asking you, like, wait a minute, does Apex even have? Can you even do anything asynchronously? Is there any? Is there anything? Are there threads in Apex? Is there multi-threading? There isn't. Is there asynchronous? Is, no. Is there an eventing? And I'm not like I don't, I don't know where there is. So I'm not sure why you would even use a promises library in Apex, other than I, it, I can understand promises for JavaScript, but not in Apex. Everything is synchronous. You have a 10 second, 10 second CPU limit, so there's no chance of of holding a even the thread that you get from Salesforce, the single thread that you do get. There's no chance of holding that for any amount of time. So I'm guessing that these libraries don't actually deal with any, or I don't think there's any multi-threading involved. I think what it is, is it just gives you that promises programming model. So instead of having to, like, let's say instead of chaining or nesting some try-catch blocks, or mm-hmm. like some try blocks inside, you can use a promises programming model that's more linear and doesn't nest in, you don't get, you know, nesting hell. Even though there's no threads involved, you could I, still like let's say you had 10 let's say you have 10 callouts uh-huh. okay now they're going to they're going to they're going to execute synchronously which actually sucks right 
especially if you don't need the output from one as the input to another. They're going to asynchronously, but if you if you want to take some different action, if one of them fails or whatever, if or if, if any of them fail, that you could have some either a bunch of just try blocks ride all on top of each other or or nested, right? And with a promises model, you would at least have something that looks more linearly coded. So it could, it could give you just a little bit of a better API, essentially, than, than try-catch. So I don't know if that's the use case, if that's kind of the, the reason, but... I mean, I could see some value in that for some back-end processing where you, you, again, you're trying to avoid the nested... You're trying to avoid nested kind of method calls. You can make, you can make a call, you can tell it what to call back to... But there's no, but it, there's no generics. There's Code no... Fryer. It was Code Fryer. Who is huh. that? Kevin P. He's probably an MVP. I'm sure, right? Seems like everyone's an MVP. Yep, he is. Wouldn't you know? Um, <laughs> well, okay. We have we have some some Trump bashing. Let me get past that. Um, what on the site you're on? No, on his Twitter feed. Oh, this is. I mean, social media nowadays is, and I understand people, you know, people are people and they're multidimensional and they're, they want to tweet about different things, but that's fine. I'm not going to argue with that. It just, for me, it makes Twitter a bummer because I, I just stay off of it. Or I have to, I'm, you know, I mainly use Twitter for business and tech. And so to have to weed through all this other crap, um, it just, for me, what I want to do, it makes it, makes it difficult. So yeah, he's got new posts, uh, use promises and apex for easy asynchronous code execution. Hmm. Well, we're gonna have to look into this. Yeah, I mean that—that's a concept I would have never thought to port over to Apex. And but how is I, he doing? I, what, I think it'd be interesting to see what the use case is for that. I mean, what kind of asynchronous? How is he doing asynchronous calls? I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. Anyway, um, I mean, it could be some kind of layered interfaces that you have to implement, and then and that becomes your callback your syntax and. I, I mean, I can only guess at right. how this is being implemented because there there is no there is no multi threading. You get what you get, and after ten seconds, you're done. You're done. Goodbye. Man. And considering that reactive programming is, is a new hotness, why are we creating new promises libraries? I, I think these are people who just have have this need, that have a certain need. They they experience certain things in certain environments, and they want to try to port that over to Apex, which I think is valuable and a good experience and yeah. a, a good thing to try to do. And especially if they, if they can find a use case for it and then, and then if they've done it, why not share it with the world yeah. and put it out there? No, just, I, I, I don't know. I, Reactive is one of these things. It's got a, it's got a pretty big learning curve, but once you get it, I mean, it's, it's really powerful. It, for, first of all, it's a good, it's a good programming model, just like promises are a much better programming model than these nested callback functions and everything. Um, but uh, the, the tools you have on reactive are, are really nice. But that, that, that's apex. So, you had mentioned at lunch also promises in Lightning might being an issue, and you no, pointed to some. No, thread. I wasn't. Wasn't promises? Oh, it was promises. You're it was right. promises. Yeah, and someone asked on because I was googling for this, and I came across a, a Stack Exchange thread, and the guy asks, um, you know, is it cool to use promises in Lightning? And he kind of spelled out this really long post, like the problem problem he's having. I was like, God, that actually, and if you have to write a post that long because you've got promises. Or a problem in Lightning that kind of sucks, but then the answer was even much longer than that. And it's like this complex answer of like, here's why you have to be careful; they don't work right, right, and all this stuff. And I'm like, ah. you know, this is again. And I, I told you, I'm like, I know enough about Lightning to be dangerous. 
I still don't really want to use it. Um, well, I haven't, I haven't even taken it to that degree. I haven't taken it to the degree where I'm actually building, I, I'm sorry, use the word actually, where I'm doing something that, that requires some kind of additional layer to manage the amount of events that I'm kicking off. It's, it's been fairly simple. Get some data, respond to, to a single event, you know, produce some data or, or, you know, redirect. Yeah. I haven't got to the point where I'm actually building something really big that requires some additional layers to help me out. I, I want to get there, but I'm also fearful because I'm thinking, oh, JavaScript, I can, I can introduce this library, I can do this. Well, you can't because of the way Salesforce abstracts you and tries to secure their platform. Again, it's not Salesforce just trying to be mean and saying, no, you can't do that. It's, it's they're trying to secure their platform. Well, I'm not your sure, I'm your code not sure. is I'm running not, in I'm context. I'm not sure I buy that. I've heard you make that argument. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I buy that. I don't think you have to ruin JavaScript in order to protect your platform. It's not a matter of wanting to ruin JavaScript, but think about it. Your code is running in the same context as everyone else's code it's on running that in page. The browser. It's running on a bra- in the browser. Yes, but you're running in the context of a page. And in JavaScript... The, the the object the object that ties everything together on that page is the window object. And so they have to abstract you from that window object. How's that different than Visual Force? I can have JavaScript in my Visual Force and I can do whatever I want. If anything I want to do, it still has to go through a, a security layer that makes sure that user can do what I've asked no, we're, to we're do. talking client-side stuff. What's, I, to, what's, what to prevent, what's to prevent my script from reaching over into uh, Financial Force's script that's running on the same page and start and start running a bunch of their commands? I don't know what's to stop my my Visual Force, the embedded JavaScript and Visual Force from doing things. I mean, again, you you, you shouldn't install apps you don't trust. I mean, if you install install app or if you have someone build a page for you, you know, it needs to do what you need it to do. I mean, it, what what is the what is the solution to that? I just don't understand even the argument. And again, maybe this is just my ignorance with with Lightning. I don't understand the problem here, and I don't understand why. Unlike anyone else, Salesforce has got to shut down promises. They got to shut down calls out, calls out to other things. It's 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 going to be like any no other web development you've ever seen. I, I get your concern with that. I get the fact that okay, we've moved to JavaScript, and and we're all hopeful that we'll get to do some really cool things with with say React or or um, Angular. Angular. You know, all these other libraries, and get to build some really nice stuff. The latest that, hotness, Vue.js. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but but but. You know, the, there's always a but with Salesforce. You know, now we're running in the context of a page with with their framework involved, and your and then you want to inject your framework and what's how it's going to conflict. And I, I think Salesforce just kind of bunted on this one and said, "Okay, we'll let you do that." Yeah. I got, but you're going to do. I cannot you're, let that slide. First of all, you're mixing sports. They punted. <laughs> Bunting is a different sport. <laughs> <laughs> sports <laughs> go sports go sports go sports team that's gonna be me this weekend yeah. go sports team because i don't care about the damn super bowl <laughs> go sports team i'm gonna use an excuse to buy a bunch of barbecue and sit on my butt See, in front of the tv and, this, and eat this is why women shouldn't be uncomfortable at least around us but if men start getting into these sports metaphor or sports stories and crap <laughs> because we don't know we don't know anything about sports either so <laughs> Well, you know more than I do because you at least will, will watch the Cowboys. I won't even watch any. I I watch esports. Uh, I don't even want to go into that. <laughs> You're gonna piss me off. <laughs> <laughs> I I anyway. pay to watch esports. By the way, back to the the, uh, the lightning thing. You know, the thing is, is developers just they they want to be able to get stuff done. They want to build good. Systems that people like to use, and they want to be able, and they want to do it efficiently with good tools and good technology. Yeah, I agree. And you know, I don't know. I don't. Again, 
I don't know enough about about lightning to really I'm not and I'm trying I'm not trying to criticize it. It's just already sending I'm already getting a lot of these signals that there's just a lot of issues. Salesforce has yet again gone and done it their own way. They've wrapped they've wrapped some standard stuff in this shroud of proprietariness that has that prevents us from using the tools we want to use, from getting the performance we need to get. And for what? I mean, at the altar of oh, it's because security. Well, that's not a good enough answer. I mean, yes, we need security. We but you can build. I mean, my bank's app is written in Angular. And it's damn secure, you know. This can be done, but but, can it, but the bank is not is not having to allow third party vendors to inject their code into there. What what happens? Okay, so what? Okay, you're you're developing for something and and you're trusted. Well, what happens if if your developer's machine gets infected and and it's infected with some kind of virus or worm or whatever you want to call it? that injects itself into your code base, you deploy that to all your customers, and now all your customers have access to all your Salesforce data because there's some script that's running and pu- pushing that data out somewhere. I don't know. I, I didn't really follow all that, but it sounds like you probably shouldn't have let some bad script get in. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just saying, I mean, security holes happen. They happen everywhere. And I think Salesforce approach is to ban everybody until they do it the way they want to do it. It's kind of a scor- It's a scorched earth uh, approach to things. Well, it is. I- it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's a visa system. <laughs> No, no entry allowed yeah, until you have this exactly. visa, and that visa is the contract that you establish with, you know, the lightning. I've got to say, the this, lightning, lightning. This, this lightning policy is against all of my values. <laughs> I agree. We, we should build it to uh, no borders, Salesforce. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway. Um, but it is frustrating to to think because in my head I was thinking, all right, I'm, I'm in the JavaScript world, script world now. I'll be able to do some really nice things. You know, I'm just waiting. I'm biting at the chip for someone to come up and say, yeah, we've got this really big initiative we want to build, and we're using Lightning. Can you do it? And I, I I'm, I'm so ready to go. Yes, let's do this. Come on. And then I can I can toss in Angular in there. I can toss in React. I can toss in whatever I want in there and get it and have some fun. Yeah. But that's been tempered by. By what Salesforce says is is the things they've done to ensure security. Yep. Cloud. And is the cloud right. really secure? We t- uh, you tweet. You, well, there's no you, such there's no such thing as security. Security is an illusion. You've got your bits are flowing over the internet. I mean, as much as you try. I mean, obviously you have to you have to put every effort. Uh, True, but to, to have security, but it's, it's an illusion. There's and there's 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 holes in everything, and it's just it, a matter of time. I don't know. To, to say that almost seems like you're saying, "Yeah, well, I try." No, no, no. But, I'm not saying to give up. And may, I, honestly, it's probably the other. I'm actually, I'm actually maybe even supporting Salesforce in that security is always an ongoing problem. They've always got to be. It's probably the most important thing to their business. It absolutely is. Um, is if people don't trust Salesforce, if they don't trust it's secure, then. Nothing else matters. It, it is security is at the bottom layer of the Maslow's hierarchy of cloud needs. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe it's not just security. Maybe it's maybe it's in a spectrum of things. Maybe it's you know support requests. Maybe it, maybe if your script is allowed to interfere with someone else's script, that causes a bunch of support issues. Maybe if your script is allowed to interact with the page, Gee, no, no wonder people complain about Lightning being so slow. You've got like seven different JavaScript, individual JavaScript apps, all running on the same page. <laughs> well, no, wait a minute. What could possibly go wrong? No, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to attribute slowness to so many different scripts running. I, I, they, I don't know why they did this. I really don't know why they took the approach of aggressively caching so much information in the browser. Because it cuts down on 
round trip calls, right? Well, they did that for they did that to help them. They did that to to reduce the amount of traffic. But that would for also them. help performance. Unless you're saying, are what are you running out of memory or something? They're they're doing it today. Every page you go to requires a call to the server. Well, to get the data for that record, but like the the metadata, the S object account metadata, all that, and the page layouts, that's that's they load that once and that stays in memory. Of course, yeah. You jump to a different account, it's gonna have to do a call to get the data for that account, but it doesn't have to get the page layout metadata again. It doesn't have to get the field metadata again. That all that all stays cached. Well, from that perspective, I mean, the then snowman, it should be once super the snowman fast. It should be super fast. <laughs> But that's not what I'm it seeing. Should, well, I agree. It should be. I know why it's not. And and again, I, I don't even use. I, I, I think I think the mechanism they're using to store that into the cache is creating a much larger wait time than anything. Because I think it has to deserialize that. And in for some reason, the deserialization of that cache data is not as efficient as it should be. Or there's something wrong with it that's causing what we're seeing. Yeah, Caching so. should make it faster. I agree. I've done that. I've yeah. I've cached things on the on the client side that I shouldn't have to query every time to improve performance. But, some, but something some is other happening here. Can. Something yeah. is happening here that's what, preventing. Do you that. open up? I mean, have you have you um, performance analyzed it in Chrome or anything to see what is it? What is it? Is it CPU time? Is it rendering time? Is it is it HTTP time? What? You don't know because you you get sent to a page. And you get your what used to be the snowman is now the the that's a dancing the rainbow. rainbow. Well, it's not even dancing. It just does swipes once and then swipes. It's like it swipes. It's, is there like a windshield wiper on it. I windshield wiper. It. Yeah, it's the windshield wiper really? rainbow. Yeah, it, it kind of <laughs> like slides into place. Okay. And then it it doesn't. I don't think it slides back. I think it just starts over. It just slides into place again. So it's not even windshield wiper. Yeah. But e- either way, you get now. Now we all can hate rainbows. Now we used to hate snowmen. Now we can hate rainbows for for having to wait. Why now? Why do you got to do that to the rainbow? Symbol of uh, good things, right? <laughs> of, of peace and love and uh, bright futures. Yeah. Why do you got to do that? I don't know. <laughs> don't take my symbols well, from me. <laughs> well, before, we, we, before, you know, when they came out with a new icon for Salesforce, we could still hate Salesforce but love the icon. Now we're forced to hate the, the icon because it, it's in our face because we have to wait for it to finish. Maybe if you hate the icon, you'll love Salesforce. It, uh, it's, a, it's a mind trick on you. Maybe. We'll blame the icon and not Salesforce. Right, exactly. Oh. Now, I was I actually was talking with a uh, someone who runs a uh, I would say a yeah a Salesforce con- consultancy, and this person was telling me that they just recently did and they they're using they've got you know they they've got Lightning experience enabled and configured but a lot of people still aren't using it in the org, and they've done some analyses and basically you need to get certain tasks you know various tasks done is approximately three x. Uh, takes takes three x longer on Lightning than it does on Classic still, hmm. which that still actually shocked me. I'm like I almost found that hard to believe. I'm like because I, I mean I've poked around in Lightning. I've got a couple of clients that um, I'm not building anything UI for them at the moment, but that that are on Lightning. I log in and it actually seems. I mean I've noticed it getting getting a lot better. It, it, I think it's um I I've seen I I've seen that, and I think what my opinion is on that is that Salesforce took an opinion on how people use Salesforce. And they prioritize how sales would use Salesforce. So they they your first screen that you go to for a record is this kind of overview screen. It's not made for data entry. So you're not put into a place where you can see and data entry really quickly. You're put into a place where you can kind of get a, a gist of that account or a gist of that contact. You can get kind of this overview. And then you drill into the details. And I think that's probably what we're seeing is we're seeing a divide between sales who just wants to see a quick overview of something and the rest 
the world, the, the people that built Salesforce into a platform for all their other applications, their operations, and their data entry needs, I think we're seeing that difference. We're seeing that divide. We're seeing that conflict. Sales doesn't care. They don't care about all the data entry. They don't care about the millions of fields that you have on your screen. They just want to know what's this customer's contact information, what's going on with that contact, yeah. what's what's this, what's that, at a very high level. So they can prepare and, and, and move on and, and make the sale. The rest of us who have built operational applications into the into Salesforce are very focused on data entry, very focused on those kind of things. And that's not what Lightning was tailored towards. I think it's a little bit of a diminutive view of um, of salespeople. A lot of salespeople actually are power users and have to enter a lot of data. But uh, no, <laughs> I know plenty of salespeople who I, I've said this before. I've known salespeople who who are good enough at their job that they're able to have a an assistant assigned to them to do nothing but data entry, so they don't have to be bothered bothered with that. Hmm. Bothered. I mean, that's good for them. I, that's probably, I think that's a minor. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't think sales likes data entry. I mean, their, their job is to go out and, and sell and tell a story and, and get people to, to, to buy that story, I guess. Yeah. You know, they, they don't, they don't, they don't want to sit there and enter a quote. Well, they don't want to sit there and enter right. a deal. We, we've certainly heard plenty that's a waste of, of their time. We've heard those accounts of, uh, that sell that Salesforce really wasn't written for salespeople. It's more for managers and salespeople don't like it. That's why remember those entire products that, are for salespeople to use because they're actually pleasant to use, and it then backs your data back into Salesforce for you. It's hmm. got a, it's got much better like data capture and kind of integration with social things and whatever, and it'll put it, it'll you just use it and then it'll put the data in Salesforce for you. Do you remember that we talked to this like a year ago? There was some product that came out. Oh, I thought we were like building that product. No, <laughs> someone else built it, I guess. Well, John, I've I've got some important uh, some important news here. I think we need to cover, and it's it's dramatic. Okay. Uh, bacon reserves have hit a 50-year low. That's <laughs> because I started making whiskey with bacon, isn't it? I know. It? It's all your fat washing. You've caused the <laughs> price of pork to go up. We're down to a mere 17.8 million pounds of frozen pork belly. You know who I blame? It's the lowest since 1957. I, bl- I blame these these uh, these burger shops that like have like mounds of bacon everywhere. I know. Here, this is an actual quote. There are literally not enough little piggies going to market. <laughs> uh, We're producing more pigs than ever, yet our reserves are still depleting. Anyway, I just wanted to... That's my PSA. I, they shouldn't be so damn delicious then. Little Is, piggies. Am I allowed to play my PSA happy jingle even though it was sad news? Yes. Okay. We we need to curtail our, our, our bacon eating habits to only breakfast and the, the occasional wow. two strips on a burger. That's not the America I know and love, John. <laughs> Otherwise we won't have piggies left yeah. at all. All right, I got some follow up. Somebody pointed out, I don't remember who it was, sorry. That we completely did not mention. I had saw I saw this actually when I was kind of prepping, but I forgot to mention it. The the article that we talked about last week about Salesforce being the new Blackberry kind of in a condescending or negative way. And it was written by, supposedly, a guy who is a CEO of a competing CRM company. Ah, uh, well, that just negated everything. Well, it does. Said. And if you remember, if you recall, we were talking about how he really missed a lot of stuff because he he wrote that whole, whole article as if the Einstein initiative didn't exist. 
because he was basically bashing Salesforce for not having any intelligence. I'm like, well, have you read the news the past year? Yeah. You know. But anyway, he actually responded. I, re- I went back and looked at that. He responded in the comments, and I just wanted to, for the record, this is what he says. He says, I'm the CEO of Signpost. Thanks for reading this and sharing feedback. Perhaps a disclaimer is in order. Uh, is in order. Signpost is an AI marketing technology. Our customers are consumer-facing. We don't compete with Salesforce. In fact, our team uses Salesforce. From our experience, we think users should expect more automation and ease of use from their product. So that's his side of the story. Well, I think Salesforce agrees with him. It might. Salesforce is all about the, the clicks, not codes. Um, we have some financial news. I think this one of these happened last week. We didn't talk about it. Microsoft released their results. I guess this was... Uh, yeah, boring. Well, <laughs> I, I, I like to cover... I like to track Microsoft. I like to track Oracle, Amazon, and even Apple just because you're such a fanboy. Everyone, uh, everyone's doom and glooming everything. But anyway, Microsoft... No, no, no. Wait, no. Every, everything's I, make, make it great again now. And I will tell you, so far, everything is great again. So Microsoft's cloud revenue is way up. First of all, they beat expectations overall. $26 billion of revenue in the quarter. Azure was up 93%. Now that's, I think last quarter they were up like 112%. So the growth rate is is slowing some, but still, it's basically doubled. And they don't really, they don't break it. So Azure is buried in their server and like services that's what bucket. i was going to ask I didn't, I didn't think it broke azure out yet but the, but the analysts they can if you just cross reference a few things you can figure out pretty easily and they they are saying that the azure's revenue was three billion dollars in the quarter so they're at a oh and they're saying the annualized run rate of azure is is north of 14 billion it's pretty big man yeah i need to jump on the azure bandwidth i know bandwagon. i've been saying i really haven't done much with Azure. i'd like to check it out i mean i've I kind of my go-to is you know AWS for infrastructure stuff and Heroku some for real simple apps, but yeah, I don't know. Um, phones the phone sales were down eighty-one <laughs> percent. <laughs> yeah, they're not going to be known for no. for phones. I think I think that's a market that's already Surface passed. was down two percent, but are they between cycles on Surface? I don't well surface is such a loaded term for them because they call a lot of things surface. I think they, it's the surface books and also that uh, even the the new thing is I yeah. think the, but 1.3 billion so they're doing like you know 5 billion a year worth of service that's I don't know that's yeah I mean that's about 5% of their business that's not nothing that's significant. Yeah it's just it's just an odd thing because it's not tablet it's not notebook but it's considered both and Well that's a, that's an indictment of of the product itself if you say that. I mean, if you're saying that's the reason it's not selling, it's because it's like no one knows what to do with it. No, I'm saying people are buying it because they're treating it as a notebook with a with a bonus so, that it can they get it can transform into a tablet. I mean, that sounds like a selling feature. That seems like that's something that would well, bode well for it, right? It, it is. Okay. I, I just think that I just think that people who traditionally buy Microsoft PCs buy them for non business. I'm talking non business. Mm-hmm buy them for the ability to kind of upgrade and tinker and do all those kind of things, you know, th- that kind of happy path versus I just want this thing that works and I'm never going to touch it again, you know, business or, or casual users. I wonder how much of it is because I was in the Microsoft store a couple of weeks ago. I think I mentioned that. And th- they look like good machines. Um, I'm still, I just still don't think, I mean, there's things about Windows 10 that I'm, uh, I don't 
think I'm, I'm fond of. But overall, though, I'd, I'd like that machine. And I, I could see myself, I'm like, eh, that's because I, I like, you know, I'd like, I'm all about build quality. Ever since, you know, these Macs started coming out, you know, the unibody and everything, I just, I, you know, I, I couldn't go back to some plasticky, you know, Asus or Dell piece of crap. <laughs> Whatever. Who makes the plastic? Whoever makes the plasticky ones that you know you pick it up by the edge and it starts creaking and it almost feels like it's going to snap in half. And that's funny you you buttons, say that. You know that ports snap off and crap snaps snaps off and you know just I can never. So I'm so I'm willing to you know I'm willing to pay money for a well built machine because I don't like buying them often. But when I do, I want to get a good one, right? And the service seem like nice machines. But here's the catch: I think Microsoft. A big part of Microsoft's market is that budget value market. People that want to pay three hundred, three, four hundred dollars for a PC, and those Surface machines are for like a reasonably equipped, equipped one. You're you're over the two thousand dollar mark. Well, no, I don't. I don't think it's markets pl- or Microsoft's play. Microsoft's play is to compete with Apple directly. So they're looking for that higher build quality, that premium machine. They're leaving that smaller market to people like Dell. They probably should. It's just yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's a strategy. I could I could argue for. I mean, it, it, but it, it's it's their way of chipping away at Apple's market share, and and hopefully, uh, their strategy is to try to take over that market, that premium market. I got a I got a Satya Nadella quote for you. Our customers are seeing greater value and opportunity as we partner with them through their digital transformation. Yeah, that means <laughs> as we leverage our legacy stake in their their IT department, we're pushing them to buy these services. Yeah. Uh, but supposedly their their cloud stuff is going to hit twenty billion by twenty eighteen, which is sounds like it's forever from now. But that's actually next year. <laughs> twenty billion by twenty eighteen. Oh well, that might explain Benioff's uh, new mantra of twenty billion in what two years? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, let's see what else. Office grew ten percent. Most of that was on the consumer side. I think the consumer side it was up like fifteen percent, and business was up like five percent. Hmm. Uh, LinkedIn is a drag. They had $228 million in revenue, but they lost $100 million. Hmm. So, And I don't think they're doing much with LinkedIn yet. I mean, I'm sure they're furiously working on integrating LinkedIn with Dynamics and all that, but I, I don't think anything has come to fruition yet. Yeah, it's odd. I, I still have a kind of love-hate relationship with LinkedIn. I, I really don't care for it. I don't like it. That's all I can say. I don't like it. Well, I mean, because, I, I love, because people I love, abuse it. People, it's the recruiters have ruined LinkedIn, and it's just weird. I don't like LinkedIn personally, but I'm not a fan of any social media thing. I'm not. I'm not a fan of Twitter. I'm not a fan yeah. of Facebook. I'm not a fan of LinkedIn. But I can see how the 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 data behind all that is valuable for people who are putting data in. I can see how you can mine that to to be something valuable. So from that right. perspective, I like it. Yeah. But from my personal perspective, I'm like, I'm not. I'm. I don't share like that. Yeah. Uh, supposedly Dynamics 365 grew at 9%, which is not that great, huh? Yes, I think that's year over year. It's better than negative percent. It is. It's just, you know, I don't know. Let's be positive here. Well, I mean, is Microsoft trying to compete with Salesforce? And this, They're other, always trying to compete with Salesforce. Yeah, okay. They have a CRM. It's, it's, not a, it's not a great showing. I mean, I think Salesforce still grows at, what, 20-something percent? But uh, it's an interesting thing. I compared, uh, so Microsoft's R&D budget is, I think, $12 billion? And I looked it up. That's about 15 times of sales, Salesforce's R&D budget. So, you know, all Salesforce, I mean, Salesforce is basically still a, they're a CRM company, right? And Microsoft is this giant technology company. And even though Dynamics itself, which is what competes directly with Salesforce, is a small product for Microsoft, those two companies as a whole, I mean, Microsoft just, what's the word? It, uh, 
dwarfs Salesforce. Dominates. Yeah, just dwarf, completely dwarfs it. Anyway, and then we had Apple uh, results. Did you see those? Came, what was that yesterday? I've been avoid. I've been, I've been avoding it. This to was, be honest. You know, this was because yeah, you, you know people. Everyone wants Apple to to, you know, to or they want to think that Apple is there past its it's past its prime and it can't innovate. It's going to go out of business. Well, right? you can't argue with some some of the lack of innovation that there's kind of holding the the ship steady not to say that that ship isn't still making money which is kind of frustrating yeah you're knocking them for that coming something with something brand new that that ooze and oz but you know what they're still making money uh, yeah they're printing an insane amount of yeah. i mean they're, they're so profitable it's not but, like they're chasing well, profitability here they're profitable it's not and it's not that i've, I've got plenty of criticisms of apple and, and oh we, and we can talk products. about these macbooks but I, i'm i'm at but this the, point but in, the, the hyperventilating and in the <laughs> over apple right the the dooms predictions it's like come on anyway i will say tangent tangent i will say wait for the release two of these macbooks really yeah i i've gotten all kinds of graphic issues you've had graphic issues yeah you know i i think these these need to be very in fact i'm thinking next year i probably will trade this in for a newer one for the kb lake yeah until the kb lake comes out or is it cabby kb cabby i think it's kb lake did you know tangent again (laughs) tangent two uh nested two uh, oh, you, you better keep track of our stack here. <laughs> we're gonna hit, we're gonna head to Stack Overflow. Uh, iteration, get it? <laughs> iteration plus plus. Oh wait a minute, that's not safe. Iteration plus equals one. <laughs> um, did you know KB Lake? Because you were talking about a media center. Apparently, KB Lake in the chipset will run uh, Netflix 4K, whereas nothing else will because it has to be built into the chipset. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I, I heard that. I, I saw I, first, that. First somewhere. of all, I already run Netflix 4K, so you don't have to have KB Lake. KB no, Lake there, has some optimization. Kind of, there, there's some kind of per, yeah. There, there's some kind of optimization. Yes, I, I'm not saying that you can't run 4K, but but it's optimized at the chip right. layer to run that. I looked at before I bought this machine. I really looked at KB Lake to. And, and by the way, it's not Apple's fault that these didn't have KB Lake. Intel just Intel has been screwing over Apple for years now. Almost every. You can look back almost every uh, delayed or seemingly stale release or non-release of these. It's all it's all Intel's fault, which is one reason why I think you, there's some fairly credible rumors that Apple's considering moving off of Intel somehow or another, which really scares me. But I, I looked at KB Lake, and, and it, it's got it's got basically it's going to have minor speed. It's going to have a minor speed bump, but the big thing, if I remember correctly, is it's going to have some media functions that are built into the CPU. I just don't think... I think it's one of those things for me, you could put the KB-like machine for me next to the Skylake, and for the work I do, I would not be able to tell the difference. So what about your media center? Would you be able to tell the difference? I mean, you're, you're, no, because you're somewhat I, of a okay. videophile, an audiophile. I no, mean, you, I just like, no. you nerd out about that stuff. Well, a little bit, but I've already... like I'm, I've been scoping out... I was looking at these Intel NUX, the ne- what are they called? Next Unit Computing or whatever. It's, it's basically like a little Mac Mini, right? It's, except it's... And an Intel motherboard, Intel chassis yeah. and CPU and everything. And I was actually I'm actually looking at getting almost one of the one of the closest to the bottom ones because there are plenty of CPU to run. What you want is you want enough video, you want enough pro- power to to smoothly run 4K and things, but you don't want to overbuy because that's when you get louder fans, bigger fans, you know, stuff like that. You really don't want to. I mean, yeah. there's, there's absolutely, as far as I know right now. Zero need for KB like that. That'd be a that'd be a complete over overshot if if what you're wanting is a multimedia PC. Unless you're doing things like live tra- uh, transcoding to several clients. Okay, then you need yeah. You're you're transcoding to several streams at a time to different people. Okay, then get get as much CPU as you can get. 
and a lot of you know, a lot of cores, as many cores as you can get. But I'm not doing that. I'm just I'm I'm just exporting video to one TV. You're watching your Game of Thrones, exactly. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so you really don't want to overbuy because then you get again you get more heat and more fan noise. So uh, that yeah. affects with the breath of the dragons. Well, let's get back to I Apple. don't know. I don't watch Game of Thrones. Uh, they they beat pretty pretty solidly uh, seventy eight billion for the for the revenue for the quarter, and that's that's a good, that's a good three times Microsoft. So Apple's now three times the size of Microsoft. That's that's uh, so amazing considering that they well, were, they're almost they dead. were so under. They were almost dead. Yeah. Well, in fact, my, in fact not, Microsoft had to dump a bunch of cash into Apple. Do you remember gonna, that? I was going to say it's it's not a bad thing for Microsoft because they oh, still have Apple has they still made, have stock in Apple, Apple. Has they the, what would they put a hundred million in Microsoft? I bet they've made billions on that. Mm-hmm. I think they still have it. Uh, so Tim Cook says we sold more iPhones than ever and set all time revenue records for iPhone services, Mac, and Apple Watch. They have twenty. They had twenty-seven billion dollars in operating cash flow and eighteen billion dollars in profit in three months. <clears throat> I mean, just let that number sink in. Well, this year, this year is probably going to be in in terms of doom and gloom headlines. It's going to be worse because the rumor is this year they're going to release the seven and the eight at the same time. Well, they have the seven. Seven's already. I'm out. sorry. They. The, I'm sorry. The uh, the seven S and the eight at the same time. I don't understand that. I'll have to. Well, it's the, it's the the ten year anniversary. They apparently want to make a splash. They apparently want to show that they can still innovate. So the eight will apparently be something a little more innovative. Okay, a complete change in design, and the S will be kind of the the next version with some upgraded specs. I of guess I'll the get current the eight version because I'm on that I'm on that plan now with Apple. I just get the latest phone. Yes, I, I mean these these are all rumors, yeah. but but it it'll be a fairly controversial year, I think, for Apple in terms of. Just how the media is going to try to spin, or even just the blogosphere is going to try to spin, you know, this this rumored I do think, uh, release. I do feel like Apple's having. Phones. I don't. I don't want to. Uh, you know, over. I don't want to exaggerate this, but I don't know if it's an identity crisis or if they're at a crossroads. But they're they're trying to figure out like, are they are they just a phone company, like a or a consumer device company? Are they still a computer company? If they are a consumer device company, then what's next? What's the next thing? You know, there's all these questions. You know, Sam is it Samsung? Who, who's the one that's all, all also selling like 70 million phones a quarter? I think Samsung. Samsung yeah. yeah. So they're. I mean, they're. In fact, Samsung. I think had eclipsed Apple, and but now with this with this news, Apple's back on top. Barely they sold 78 million iPhones in three months. Let that sink in too. 78 million iPhones. I guess the removal of the headjack was not uh, was not the end of Apple, huh? <laughs> Although that no. does, that's still every day that pisses me off. I didn't realize it would, but it really does. Mm. Because I have, you know, this headset that I use for you my phone. You have a dongle. But, yeah, but I also use just the native head, the one that came with it that has lightning. And I'll unplug it from my phone and, oh, oh, guess what? I can't plug that in my computer now because my brand new Apple computer doesn't have a lightning port for that audio. So oh, it doesn't, just, does no, it? No, it's just frustrating. <laughs> anyway, um, Okay, real quick, Mac sales. Because remember the you know the death of the Mac too, right? Because they're neglected. So last year, the, this quarter, they did um, six point seven billion dollars in Macs, and this same quarter this year, seven point two billion dollars in Macs. Uh, mm. Units, the unit numbers were about the same. Wow, yeah, but the the dollar numbers way up because they're charging more for them. I found it interesting that the services is the second biggest revenue center. Of course, it's only 9%, but it's, it's the first one be- behind iPhone. Really? What and, services? Well, you tell me. Is um, it the cloud 
Well, it could be it could be all the microtransactions that they they handle. It could be, but they're also talking about, or, or there's rumors that they're going to be adding to that, um, like original video and a video streaming service, but original content. Yeah, I, I consider all, I lump all that under microservices because you have the radio service, you have the you have you have the app store and all those services, and those generate transaction revenues. And it, 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 in terms of service, I mean, that's the only thing I think of. So services uh, supposedly includes app store, yeah, Apple Pay, yep. and iCloud. Yep, yeah, those are all microservices to me. And that jumped from last year, jumped 18.4%. So that's growing pretty well. Oh, that's good for the ecosystem because that's where that that's where that money's coming from. Yeah. Um, we have another, another performance thing I saw here. This is someone tweeted this. Basically, CS60 has tests sitting five plus minutes queued before they ever run. A lot of people ch- are jumping onto this. This is an MVP if they really got to fix this, you know what? What's amazing, and I realize this because the deployment times. Uh, yeah, just the, the, it's the it's, <laughs> hold on. No, it's I, the, I, I want to like draw a line here because you went from Apple to Salesforce. I'm moving on, I'm moving <laughs> okay. on. Yes. Okay, I just want I just want to make sure that's clear. Um, yeah, it's again, it's, it's the developer experience. But what I find is is you know, obviously, I've got I've got things that I want out of Salesforce in terms of tool uh, tooling and and languages and things like that, but. Just simply performance uh, and and wait times. When I'm on a pod that just happens to be running really well, I mean, I I am much I'm a much happier person, and I, I have a much better view of Salesforce can, than when I'm on a pod where I'm sitting. <laughs> I've got a deadline. I've got a demo coming up in three hours, and to compile an Apex class is taking ninety seconds. Can I tell you a story sure. around that? Uh, this particular environment I was in was responding extremely well. I would save and almost instantly it would come back successful to the point where I was questioning whether or not it was actually Doing saving. Anything, yeah. <laughs> and so I would actually save again. My productivity was not impacted by Salesforce at this point in time. It was it was it was impacted by my disbelief that Salesforce was responding so well. I, I really think for for the tooling API calls, the things where I'm literally waiting to push a CSS file so I can refresh and make all these micro adjustments, to, I think they should get to the point where there is no queue. There shouldn't be a queue for that. If you if we have a queue, we have a problem. You mean for static resources? No, just any any of the tooling API stuff. So, say you know Apex, Visual Force, static resources. Yes, those things. If I'm sitting in a queue, then I've got a big problem because that's dramatically affecting my developer experience. Well, I I, and I guess just, I think the only way to solve that problem is hardware at the problem, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I, yeah, I think, I mean, listen, you can find Peter Coffey bragging about how, what an embarrassing small number of computers they have to serve all these, all these customers. And, and we're like, over here saying, well, that's not enough. Exactly. Sorry. Well, yeah, get, exactly. We know that you don't have <laughs> enough computers. Get more computers. You, you, you see it as a plus and we see it as a neg. <laughs> exactly. Oh. Anyway, um, we have more uh, software as a service pissing contests here. Uh, so Dropbox has been in the news because they launched paper, I guess, more globally. Have you looked at this paper product they have? Paper product. <laughs> no. That's, I don't do paper. <laughs> anyway, he says, today, this is from his Twitter feed, Drew Houston, or maybe Houston if he's from New York. Houston if he's from Texas. Today we announced that Dropbox is the fastest SaaS company ever to reach Woo. a billion-dollar revenue run rate. And Woo. he's even got, he's, he 
post this, and it's of course IDC. So you know, hey IDC, we need a graph that makes us look good. Oh, okay, well, uh, oh yeah, you guys have your subscription paid up. We'll get we'll get you something. So they've got a graph here, and it shows Salesforce and Workday and ServiceNow, and who the heck is this? Athena Health, and Dropbox is leading the curve. They were the fastest to one billion according to their own numbers. So they beat. Well, was Salesforce fastest to one billion? They were until Dropbox beat them. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Uh, of course, none of this matters in, <laughs> to us. <laughs> All right. All right. You're the fastest to one billion. All right. Cool. It's just it's it's the pissing contest. It's I don't know. Talk about something your customers care about. You should not use the CEO's Twitter feed to talk about things that customers don't care about. Yeah. No one cares about your. Your vanity goals of hitting one billion or ten billion or twenty billion—we don't give a crap because you know why we're sitting here waiting for our Apex class to compile. <laughs> well, get it, more computers. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> it, it is something that does impact the community as a whole. We hear these things from Salesforce. We hear we hear how proud they are of the numbers they've reached and all those kind of things. But translating that to something that a care, customer cares about is kind of difficult because there is no. There is no logical way of, of tying those two. Customers care about performance, features, getting what they can done, with what they want done, done within a reasonable price you know, point. These guys always talk about you know the, their stakeholders, not their shareholders. But every time they talk about that, the one billion, the ten billion, the twelve billion, they're talking to shareholders. That's yeah. all. They're, that's who they're talking to. Exactly. I thought it was about stakeholders. It's not. I, I, well, okay, okay. F- fair enough. I'm a developer, not a salesperson, but I logically cannot think that that a sales pitch would go. Well, Salesforce got to 10 billion faster than anybody else. You should buy Salesforce. I know. No one cares. No one cares about your pissing. That's, contest. that's not a selling point. And by the way, pissing contest is the polite version of <laughs> of what I really want to say. All right. So, so speaking of Dropbox, and there's this paper. Have you? Have you I guess paper. I've never used it. I guess it's been out. I'm not. And I'm just gonna let you cough while I talk. John, swall- John had a John has a drinking problem. I swallowed wrong. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's. I don't fully understand it. It's kind of like a collaborative document editing thing, except it's got workflow and, and like due dates and tasks, and uh, people can own tasks and and you got like a really good search across like workspaces and stuff. And it's the kind of the real time collaboration aspect of Google Docs, which is pretty much the one and only thing I like about Google Docs. Um, okay. Anyway, I just don't know if you'd use paper. You know, they bought paper, didn't they? Or did they not? I don't know. Because there was some other paper product, not a paper product, but a paper product. I, I think this is the challenge of Dropbox is that it's one of those, uh, set it and forget it tools. You're like me. I'm a, I'm a very low touch user of Dropbox. Yeah. I kind of, I mean, I use it to kind of share files with you and that's a, actually kind of a bad Well, it. everything I, everything I own is on Dropbox. Yeah, I don't but, do that. However, I don't think about it. I, I put stuff in the Dropbox folder and I know it syncs to the cloud and I know, I know where it's at and what it's doing, that's but your, I'm not, that's I'm not, your backup strategy I'm not, too, right? I, I don't log into Dropbox.com ever. I don't, well, I don't either, except I, I, well, I have logged into like tweak, um, like sharing, or don't you have to go to there to, how do you do the selective, selective sync? Do you do that? Is that, I can't remember if that's, I, I don't even do that. I just, everything in this folder gets yeah. synced. No, I use that selective sync all the time because there's things I want on my Dropbox so I can share with people that I don't actually want taking up space on my hard drive. You can do that. Well, I, I think, I think that's the problem they're going to have to overcome is the fact that people, I, I think people are more like me where they just, they have Dropbox, they use it. But they're not actively logging to the website. They're not actively looking for them to add new features. 
it does what it does well enough that they don't think about it. And I think that's their challenge with, with some of these new products is that they're going to have to aggressively advertise and put it, put it out there of what these new features are and what they do, because most people see them as just a file syncing service to the cloud. Uh, do you, have you checked out smart sync? No, I guess this is new. Uh, you can you can see all your files and folders right from your desktop, whether or not they're stored in the cloud or not. No, nope. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I put stuff in the Dropbox folder, and I assume it goes to the cloud, and I'm done. But supposedly, in the on the bigger business side, that Box has a pretty good inroads with larger companies, and so Dropbox has been more consumer focused, and now they're moving into that that space. Yeah, I, they 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 both they both do the same thing, but they took different approaches, like Box took the enterprise approach, really going for companies and, like and those more type integrations of features. and APIs and stuff. And Dropbox focused on the consumer market and then is now moving into enterprise. So it, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how those two different business models play out. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Slack since I know you use that. I do. Uh, have you seen their announcements? Slack Grid? I think this is really just for big companies. It's, it sounds like it's for admins, uh, really, IT admins. Yep. They can basically... Federate, if, as I'd say that, because you know the way that Slack has worked. That's the way that Salesforce and everything else worked. That's where they start. You start in a small business, get these little rogue uh, subscriptions into this, into these product, into these services, and then next thing you know, you know your company has seven different Salesforce orgs that all these different departments have gone out on their own and, and created. Right. Well, th- yeah. this lets you tie all these different Slacks together. I think. But they also have added SAP, and of course they they announced before they had Salesforce, but now they're to, recently they're announcing SAP integration, HIPAA compliance, FINRA compliance. Um, they're they're you know jumping on the AI bandwagon. They say that they're going to have AI that helps do all kinds of stuff. Who knows? Hmm. So they're going big time, and that makes me wonder. Hmm. I wonder if Slack would be an interesting target for Salesforce. The problem at this point. Well, first of all, the problem is that they're they're still on a meteoric rise, yeah. And it's hard to catch a meteor because it doesn't. Number one, it doesn't want to be caught, and number two, you can't afford to catch it. Yep. <laughs> they're valued right now. Well put. They're valued right now at three point eight billion. Yeah, uh, that's a lot of billions. So that's essentially what you'd have to pay some somewhere in that ballpark if you wanted to buy them. No, I mean that's what they're worth now. I mean, right, Benioff rejected Microsoft's offer simply for the fact that he thinks it's worth more in the future. Yeah. They've raised... Let me ask you this. Let's turn this and turn it around into an Ask John. So knowing what Slack is, so they've, you know, this is chat thing and they've got a Mac app and a Windows or, you know, an Electron app and a, and a mobile app. How much money do you think they've raised and burned through? Uh, I don't know. I'm going to say $500 million. Wow. Five hundred and forty million. <laughs> but then I, I'm thinking to myself, self, Slack's been around for what two or three years. How do you burn through five hundred and forty million dollars? How many, how many tens of thousands of people would you have to employ? I mean, I, I think it's easy. How can you tell me? Like, <laughs> give me some ideas on how you spend that much money. Well, because because at that point in time, you're, you're you have this future plan of enterprise. You have this future plan of building out said grid system. You have this future plan of investing in people, resources, machines, hardware that's getting spent. And a lot some of that is going to be spent erroneously, meaning we're going to try this, it didn't work, so now we're going to now we learn from that, we're going to spend this. And I think it's that trial and error 
that happens that, that accumulates that money. And then, and then you just, you just have the simple fact of rewarding the people that were there when they started. Do you think that Salesforce has a Slack competitor already? Do you think that Chatter is a Slack no? Competitor? Absolutely not. They're they're two different. They're two different things. Salesforce, or, I'm sorry. Chatter is centered around the data within Salesforce. It's centered around communication within that perspective from from within that context. Whereas Slack is much more open ended. However. They have similarities in wanting to provide some kind of platform around that. They, you know, Salesforce took CRM and they, they built this platform around it. But everything kind of, you know, the CRM is the hub of that. Right. And Slack in the same perspective is they want to build a platform around Slack, but Slack is still just kind of this team chat thing. And so they're trying to build this hub around that. So from, from that perspective, they're kind of similar, but they're two different things. And I I don't see Slack being. They they both want to take up. Uh, 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 too much of the territory, right? Well, it, 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 in terms of platform, they're still different because Slack doesn't let you custom code. It lets you integrate and create it's also thoughts not, and it's widgets. It's also not a system of record or even right. relational. Yeah, I mean, so, so, I mean, they're, they're still very separate things, yeah. but you know, their goal is to kind of build this platform, this, this, this idea that, okay, you got this, but you get so much more from this. You get this platform out of this. You get the ability to integrate and communicate around all this data. I mean, is Slack really that innovative in the way it changes the way we communicate? I mean, how's it any better than Hipmunk or any of these other things that came before? Or sorry, not Hipmunk. That's the that's the travel service. What was it called? HipChat. Hip I, right? I don't know. It could just be it could just be in, in doing something really well, and the fact that it realizes that I'm going to be on multiple Slack channels, and it's built around that. It's built. It's built for. It, it's built so that I can you know log into my company account and chat there. It's built so I can log into my. Good day, sir. Account and chat there. It's built. It's built around that. I guess so. I, it's, not, it's not single purpose. It's it's not like okay, here's this chat thing, and you have to log in, and then you can chat and talk about that, like Salesforce is. It's much more open ended in that you you can you can have all these different accounts, and you can you can communicate in all these different channels. I think that's what sets it apart from things like that. Where before it was, you had this single account, and that account had access to this specific thing, and that's all you could do. Yeah, I I just I was telling you this earlier. I just thinking about it from my perspective, and I know I'm an outlier here, but I have you know basically five email accounts I have to check. I've got five chatters I'm supposed to, I'm expected to check. I guess I've got Skypes, I've got instant messaging, um, I've got Slacks I have to check now. Yeah, I've got. I mean, just I have fifty in. I have fifty inboxes, and you know what? I do. I'm gonna do a really poor job at all of them because it's too many. No, I agree. And, I, and, and Slack has definitely become an inbox. Now, I think where it can be interesting is if it replaces, if it's, if it's not adding an inbox, but simply replacing an existing inbox with a better one, then I think that can make sense. But I don't know, I guess. Well, I haven't written off email, but I do try to steer people away from email and into, into Slack because it provides some, a better interaction. Someone can send right. me a message, and if I'm available, I can respond right away. If I'm not, I can respond later. Yeah, it's it, it's this it's this more dynamic way of communicating versus email, where it's it's kind of a send. Did they get it? Did they not? Should I send a a follow up? Should I do this? Should I do that? It, it you don't are, have to worry about that. It's think, in there. It's you, in the feed. You can see it. Do you think companies are going to just take all of at least the companies that had this problem, which is I would say most all their bad culture and bad habits around email, and just reimplement those bad culture and bad habits in Slack? Uh, Bad habits, yes. That's the default. 
Yeah. I mean, in in, in the consulting world, I think we're always trying to temper the bad habits that we see. And that that comes from a place of bias, I think, to a certain extent. But at the same time, I I do see companies that that want to alert on everything. You know, their default is, oh, well, send an email alert when this happens because it's so important. And we have to say, okay, well, you're sending like 100 emails to the user. They're not going to care about your email because you're already sending 100 emails a day. Yeah. You know, how about we figure out a different way of communicating this information? How about we figure out a different way for them to care about this information? Because that's really what you want, right? You're saying this is really important for this initiative and you want them to care about it. Let's find a different way to communicate that versus just sending another email because honestly, they don't care. Yep. In fact, well, they, they probably, probably have some email rule that says dump this to my trash folder because I don't care. Right. Um, so so in the consulting world, I think I think we do see that. We do try to temper clients in a way to say, you know, maybe there's a different way to communicate this. If you really care about this, let's try something different than email. Um, but that comes from someone coming in saying, hey, let's think about this more. Not so much the technology. It's more about just changing mindset, I think. Yeah. Well, one thing that Slack automatically does better, and it still amazes me that people, for example, I'll give an example. Let me back up. Let's say that I'm just happen to be sitting down at my computer on a Sunday morning and I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to check email here. So I check email and I realize I want to reply to someone or I need to send an email to someone. I will either use one of these things that delays my email or I just won't send it. I won't hit the send button because I don't want someone to get an email on a Sunday morning and think, ah, crap, I better, I got to get in here and reply to this because he's, you know, <laughs> but it's amazing to me how many people, how many people I see still doing that. And these are not important things, but it makes people feel obligated. I don't care how much you tell them they're not obligated. The fact that, especially as a manager or a superior, you sent an email on the weekend or at night or whatever, it makes people feel compelled. And one thing that's cool about Slack is that automatically, doesn't it, says, hey, you know what? This person is probably not working or not awake right now. We're just going to go ahead and put this on snooze unless you override and tell us to send this now. That's a good feature. It is, and, and I have that enabled to where it snoozes and says I'm offline or I'm I not, I'm it not must be by default because I don't think I went in there and enabled it. So I think that's just something that Slack's doing to try to help the culture a little bit. However, changing the culture requires that you participate in changing the culture. I have, even though I'm snoozed, I can still get notifications on my watch, on my phone that says, hey, someone sent you a message. And instinctively, I want to reply because I see it and I go, oh, I know the answer to that. Let me reply really quick. But I have to stop myself. I have to say, no, if I do that, then it, it sets precedence that yeah. I'm I'm watching these yep. and you can text me at 10 o'clock at night and I'm going to respond. Well, what makes me feel bad is there's been times when I, I kind of forget and I do send that email at night or on the weekend. Yeah. And then 10 minutes later, I get a reply from the person. I'm like, oh, I feel like such an ass now. I didn't yeah. actually think about it. I didn't mean to bother them on the weekend. This was not urgent. No one, you know. Uh, so anyway. All right. Yeah. Well, John, what, you, you want to tell some stories this week? Do we have story time, time for stories? Well, I don't know. You said you want to tell some stories. I've got, I mean, I got a ton of more crap, but it's just kind of... Well, I mean, since we're talking about Slack, I just, I just had a note here. Could you know? Well, we talked about Salesforce buying Slack. Have you seen this uh, Microsoft Teams product? No, I've heard about I haven't. It. Is it even out? I don't know. Microsoft, it's, got, it's called Teams. It's supposedly like a Slack type of thing. It's going to be well integrated with Office. No, oh, okay, uh, Supposedly nice. Cisco's got something similar. That's nice. Um, but I did. I'd find uh, there's one of these Forrester guys says that uh, he says Slack is a competitor to to Microsoft Office. Interesting. Um, but buying if if Salesforce bought Slack, it would put Salesforce in a new category of communication software. I guess that's kind of obvious if you think that it's a different category from Chatter. <laughs> did Chatter just miss? I keep want to go back to this. Did Chatter just miss this boat? 
kind yeah. of targeted? Was they they picked the wrong thing? I mean, maybe Chad is more successful than I think it is. I feel like people. <laughs> this is my perspective. I feel like people begrudgingly use Chatter a lot of times. Um, I I think Chatter is better than email, the, but it, it doesn't extend beyond Salesforce. It well, yeah. Well, I mean, Chatter has you know independent groups that you can. I mean, still within Salesforce, but you've already got a license to Salesforce. So why? Yeah, but sales. And you can also get chatter licenses, John, that, that aren't that don't that get may Salesforce be, licenses. but um, unlike Slack, you don't get a chatter client that's really nice to use and easy to use unless uh, it, you switch between not accounts. Nice, not nice, but they do have a client. They it have a doesn't let client. you switch. It's horrible at switching know, between clients. It, it's 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 just horrible. It doesn't make it easy, and that's the problem. If you're going to talk about instant communication, switching between accounts has to be super easy, and Slack does that well. It makes it super easy to switch between communications. Well, Salesforce doesn't even let you switch accounts. Easy. I mean, even just well, Salesforce if you're talking about Salesforce one, you can you can draw do the drop down, figure out which which NA whatever you're supposed to be on, click that, and that'll log you in to that Salesforce one, and then you can check your chatter feed. Why are you assuming it's NA? It's very ethnocentric of you, John. <laughs> Could be in Europe, Asia Pacific. No, all right, <laughs> all right. I'll take that. I'll, I'll I'll take that whipping. Yeah. I apologize to all you EU uh, yeah. and uh, is EU the only one? Uh, there's AP, right? AP. Okay. I apologize to all you EU and AP. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we're leaving someone out. Orgs out there for my NA bias. Are there, is there <laughs> is there any South American? I think they're still NA. They're still. Yeah, they're all North American. Yeah. And anyway, so so I don't know. I just <laughs> uh, I, I lost my train of thought. Okay. Move on. Um, Salesforce opened a uh, office in right outside of Seattle, I think. Okay. Supposedly, in, in of course, the the drama here is that it's in you know in, in Amazon and in Microsoft's backyard, I guess. Ooh. But it's going to be an innovate an engineering and innovation hub. It's a Jeremy, the center of excellence. I guess they already have employees. There. They say they already have two hundred fifty employees, and uh, this it's in Bellevue. Um, but they're going to double the size and uh, yeah, hire more engineers and support personnel to fill out the office. <laughs> you just have to make sure you're... you're <laughs> this seems more like a that, that posturing kind of, move than, a, well, than anything. So. But these are, these these are going to be people working on uh, Einstein. They're going to work closely with the Einstein development teams in San Francisco. Um, and Parker Harris with the obvious quote of the day, it's getting increasingly difficult to find engineer talent in the Bay Area. Well, yeah. Yeah. That happened. Didn't we hit that point like thirty years ago? Yeah, yeah. Welcome. I mean, you can keep trying to cram more people in, and you know, welcome to the club. Yeah. Instead of five million dollars to buy a house, it'll be you know fifteen million dollars to buy a house. And yeah. um, but they're no, they're hoping to lure them to this new office um, because they're trying to make it a comfortable workspace with mindfulness areas and large lounges designed to promote collaboration and creativity. I'm still pissed. We don't have a mindfulness mindfulness area here. I saw photos of this. Place. I guess this this one corner where I have my my swivel chair. That's your mindfulness. That's zone. my mindfulness. Yeah, with a box right behind right. it. <laughs> I need to take that box. Hit your off. knees. Um, actually, I need to bring the other. I've got the the 4K box. I'll bring that back up. No, just keep it. I'm. Uh, do we okay. need the boxes? I always I would keep a box for this, but that's just me. Just throw it in the attic. It, it's. We've been using it for weeks. There's no reason. No, it's just to for keep when it. you sell it. Did, I don't care. If someone sells boxes. me something and I buy it, I'm like, like, oh, it has original box. I, that helps the value of it. Oh my god, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it does too. Only to a nerd. <laughs> to the market, John. To people that pay pay money for these things. <laughs> that's what you believe, and that's why you hoard boxes. I bet you're a box hoarder. 
Do you have all your iPad boxes and all your MacBook boxes still? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. You're oh, a hoarder. iPhone. I mean, except for the ones I've Throw sold. Throw them away. No one wants them. They Throw them away. Too. They do, too. When, when I sell a used product that's kind of a premium product, people, you get more money if you've got all that original stuff. Uh, what? A buck? No. Five bucks? Like 20% more. How much is your storage worth? I don't know. But it's, plus, it's a nice handy shipping container. You, know, you don't have to wrap it in a bunch of bubble wrap. All right. Do you, do you have stories or something stuff you want to cover? If not, we've got questions that we keep putting off. No, I have stories, but I don't know. It's four four twenty. How, how long have we been recording? Over an hour. Jeez, I thought we we're going to work on our time. Well, we can. You want to just do some questions and yeah, let's do some oh, questions. Okay. This is from uh, Matthew Armstrong. He said, "Not it's not so much a question as a topic for some discussion." So. So since coming back to work this year, many of our clients are not yet operating at full strength, so our team has been focusing on preparing for certification and learning new concepts, mostly via Trailhead. Uh, I've always been a bit of a framework nerd and have been discussing the lack of frameworks in classic Salesforce when one of the junior devs drew my attention to the new modules on Trailhead about domain-driven design. Did you know that Trailhead had a DDD I do. trail? You I didn't did. know that? No. So I'm not just some crazy old guy with esoteric ideas. <laughs> nope. Uh, these seem to be taken directly from Andy Fawcett's book, Force.com Enterprise Architecture. Well, no, his were taken from probably Martin Fowler and Eric Evans, not, not the other <laughs> way around. I would love to hear your take on this as I can expect some dev taking the trailhead modules as gospel. Yeah. Oh, I have a new hammer. Oh, look at all these nails. <laughs> and expect to see more examples of the adoption of these techniques in the future. Uh, better some framework slash structure rather than chaos. Um, I have not looked into Andy Fawcett's specific, specific ones. Uh, I know he's got, I think a, I think he's got a GitHub, GitHub repo where he describes them and has some code or something. You know, it's difficult. I mean, one of the things that makes patterns difficult, especially some of these object-oriented patterns, is they, is they, they depend on the notion of like packages or namespaces for families of classes and things. And so with Salesforce, you always have to find ways to to that, which usually ends up being some kind of crazy naming thing. Because a lot of the purpose of some of these things is, is as with object orientation, is, is to keep private things private, have that encapsulation. And when you can't, when you can't have the idea of a, if, when you can't control the scope of a class, for example, when you create a class in Salesforce, all of your other classes can see it. And that's not good. You can't create a package and have package scope classes. Well, the, the, these these frameworks that that came about into Salesforce don't really focus on that perspective. Of well, because you, you have to ignore that perspective. Well, they, they're they're Git they're they're Git code. They, they 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 come into your system as unmanaged if there is a package. They don't come in managed. No, there's no package. I mean, I, what I mean by package is like a namespace, well, a, the, a folder. Well, that, it, the, unless it's unless it's a managed package, namespaces doesn't mean anything. There are, I'm saying there are known. So that's what makes some of these patterns more difficult is traditionally the way you implement them is by, you have families of classes. For example, like a, a, like a factory, like an abstract factory pattern or something. You, factory patterns for creating families of objects. And typically you have each family in a different namespace or something. And, that, and again, you don't have that here. So yeah. it makes some of those difficult. Um, and then, you know, he's got, I think he's, like I looked at his um, unit of work pattern. That's, that's unit of work is mainly this is why I know it from is from you know, what are like hibernate and these uh e beans what do they what do they call these things uh, ORMs mm -hmm. so yeah unit of work is something that like ORMs 
would give you where you can basically ask the ask the ORM say I would like an account with this ID and it's smart enough to like get you the account plus again if you 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 design these things in uh with aggregates and you have aggregate roots and all these things so that like when when you get an account it knows oh well that account is the is the aggregate root and we will get all the other things and that the contacts and whatever like whatever's in this family of this thing and you can make opt- you can make changes to that in code and then and then once that method's done this transactional method's done because usually nowadays you do it with and um annotations on the on the method or whatever that mark that method as a transactional. As soon as that method leaves, it automatically, like it's been keeping track because it uses proxies, like Java proxies and all kinds of things to to kind of spy on what you've done and it knows what you've changed and then rolls that up into a set of insert, update, delete scripts and sends us to the database and does those all for you, like magically. And of course, in Salesforce, just because Apex is a static language that doesn't have near the dynamic and reflection support and things like that, that that something like Java or really anything else would. Um, you there's the, the, he does have a unit of work pattern. He shows you how you can do it, but it's just it's almost it's it's so much work to do it. It's like a unit of more work. <laughs> well, it, it tries you, to abstract that more work for you, you, and you use the, that. The whole pattern. idea of unit of work is that it something else is doing the work for you. And if you look at this Apex implementation of unit of work, you are having to do a lot of work for it. And it just I'm not sure that it is buying you that much at that point. Well, I I, th- I think when it comes to these frameworks, you have to understand why they exist and, and what you're going to use them for, and then you can kind of plan your development around that. But he does, I mean, he's got a lot of good ideas. I've seen some of his other stuff that I think makes more sense to use. Um, but I, I haven't looked at any of his stuff closely enough to be able to comment on it. I would say, though, that, yeah, um, that's good stuff to look at. You know, um, again, those are kind of in the in the family of actually finding a the proper way to yield object-oriented uh, technology. That's what a lot of those patterns are around. Um, but yeah, be, as, as I think as Matthew noted, um, people can get a little overzealous when they learn some new patterns and you see patterns being misused, misapplied. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, know, I know how to use the factory pattern. Every, you know, everything's I've got a factory now. <laughs> you want anything, you've got to go to a factory to get it. And it's, you know. which, which is understandable if you're building a an application and you kind of understand what you're going to need, what you're going to need the system to do, what you're going to need to do. But as if you're just writing a trigger and you want to try to inject this framework, that's just going to be the wrong approach unless you understand what problem you're trying to solve when it comes to these frameworks. I mean, a lot of them are built around building, you know, big application systems, systems that that have to do, you know, all these different things and have to manage it from a central location, from some kind of core system. And, you know, what I find is that even though they're, they're good patterns, you're better off kind of implementing a smaller version of the pattern or abstracted version of that pattern locally for for your specific use case. Unless you're building a financial force, unless you're building something big like that, then yeah, go go for these patterns. Understand them, go for that framework, install it, and because you understand exactly what it's going to provide for you. But if you're if you're talking about building a few triggers here and there or, or a simple application, you know, these frameworks just are not going to be right for you. When the thing is, I mean, with with a lot of object-oriented design, you do end up with more classes you do um, and it, it, it on the surface level it seems more complex because you have so many different layers you have so many different call you know there's so many different method calls in the chain that it, that it can be kind of difficult to debug if you don't understand what purpose that that particular method is serving so it can actually make your job a little more difficult if you're trying to use not, a not big, if you do it right well if you're trying to use a big framework to solve a very simple requirement 
it, it, it can be tedious. It can I, seem like the wrong fit. I'm not talking about using a big framework. I'm just talking about using some object-oriented design. You know, you're going to end up with you're going to end up with more smaller but more classes. Um, yeah. But but you know, the, usually the goal of these things is all about um, encapsulating complexity and and shrinking complexity into smaller parts. There's that, there's that rule that like any given thing you should be able to fit its functionality into your head, and that's that's what that helps with. And it's also about um, separation of concerns. You know, you really shouldn't mix your data access. Oh my gosh, John! I'm sorry. I didn't expect it to happen. I'm sorry. My bad. All right. John's back. Well, let's move on. Uh, I don't want to move on. Charlie Jonas again. I have thoughts on that. Uh, on what? On frameworks. That's, that's too much of a rabbit hole. I think we've answered his question. That's true. Plus, we, gotta, we need to wrap up. All right. All right. Charlie Jonas, uh, is it, have you ever thought about a polling plug-in, right? I think we, you added that to Slack. I did. Um, but he has some examples here of like, Polls that would just be interesting, like work type. Are you consultant, employee, whatever? Um, your OS, your background. Like, are you self-taught? Are you, you have a CS degree? You know, or did you have a art history degree, liberal arts, whatever, you know, like whatever. And then IDE of choice. Okay. But I, what what I don't understand about the polling part of it is what would we do with that information? I mean, I started a poll. I think poll. it's just for curiosity. Um, and, he, and he also says, he would suggest a separate channel just for polls. Well, I was advocating for that as well. I think I mentioned- people won't see them. That's the thing. People, no one's, I think people, a lot of people just, you know, I don't know. I don't think I'll jump over to the polls. But if it shows up in the general feed, I'll, I'll see them. You only see it once and then it scrolls away, right? Yeah. And I feel like that, <laughs> I feel like that kind of, uh, you lose sight of that poll. If you, uh, I, guess I want not. to lose sight of it after I do it, after, because, yeah, it stays there until you, I think until you do something with it. And I clicked. One of the choices, and then scrolled away. Like that was, I don't know. Did you did you click on my poll? Yeah, yeah, I voted. Okay, what'd you vote for? My what poll was, was anon- my poll is anonymous. So I what can, was the question? Uh, interesting topics, presentation topics. Oh, I don't remember. I think it was the third one. It was tied with, I think, the fourth one when I voted. Anyway, yeah, there's like, um, okay, and then uh, Jay Janarthanen has some. He says, I'm trying to solve a deployment workflow issue and I'd love to find out what are those things. Basically, we have 30 developers who work on their own sandboxes. Then they will send out a package.xml file. A deployment person will take that using Ant and then we move to other sandboxes and finally production. This work goes through eight different sandboxes before production. Yeah, that sounds like a mess. Um, sounds like Git would be able to solve that problem. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, basically, I mean, the thing the thing that I found that works is you, everyone gets their own sandbox. And the, the, one of the reasons for that is, well, first of all, you've got the stepping on toes problem if you don't, if people are sharing a sandbox. But also, that we can really step on toes. Let's say that I'm going to fix a bug that's, in, that's on master right now. So I'm actually going to check out master, which is going to roll my code on my hard drive back to a previous version. But then I'm going to deploy that to my, my sandbox. Because I, I need my sandbox to match what I've got on my hard drive right now so I can fix this bug and test it on what master's on, basically. Well, if I did that, I probably just overwrote a bunch of people's crap because the tooling I used to deploy, not only does it deploy new and change things, but it will delete things. If there was some new custom field that I had created and now I'm rolling back to master, it's going to delete that custom field, which is what you want. You want it, I need it to yeah. look like just what's in production in this in this 
case. So yeah, so everyone's got to have separate sandboxes. Everyone needs to be tracking the full org because there's just too many things that you don't that you'll forget that you that you need that you didn't track. You know, if you oh you need this custom field, that means you need the profile. I mean, even profiles, and that's a pain in the ass, I know, but you really have to track everything, which also means you can't make changes in production. Okay, right. yeah, at some point you just realize that you cannot make changes in production. Um, and I don't do any manual creation of package.xml, so I use a kind of a combination of the some of the ant stuff and Solenopsis, and I, you configure it to tr- you tell it the types of things you want to track, and it does it actually builds the package.xmls and all that stuff for you. But yeah, I mean, really, you got to have version control be the source of truth. That's the only sane way for people to people to be able to go and do concurrent work and then merge their work together. But the tricky thing is you have to remember every time you rebate, like for example, there's 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 thing, there's times when you need to take what's on your hard drive and push it to your sandbox, or you're gonna have problems. Um obviously every time you do a pull or a fetch or whatever and bring and and move your your local repository forward, you need to push that into your org now. If you've been working on code and you've got some of your own local commits you haven't pushed up yet, but you realize that other people have been doing some commits and push them up, and you just want to rebase on top of those. When you rebase, well, now you've got to you need to push that to your org just to make sure you know. Well, number one, to keep your org up to date because if not, you're still diverging as you work in your org. Let's say you're in the UI and you're you edit some you edit some custom fields and or whatever, you know, or or edit some Apex classes. If you're doing that again, especially through the UI, through the UI, I mean, you're 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 still diverging, so you're you're actually going to clobber someone's change. So anytime you rebase, you've got to push to your got to deploy to your sandbox. Um, you know, merges, obviously, or just anytime. So there's, you always have to, and I, that's the thing you forget. And the reason is because, let's say, let's say, again, back to the create a custom field. Seems really simple, right? But when you create a custom field, and let's just say you kind of do custom field, text field, and kind of next, 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 and you're done, right? The simple, the simplest use case. Not only did it create the custom field, but it just, it just updated a bunch of page layouts for you, and it just updated a bunch of profiles for you. Yep. So after, so now that you've done that, now you have to do whatever your tooling is to some kind of call to pull everything down from Salesforce because you need this. You need that the the custom object field that's got that's got your or the custom object file that's got your new field. You need all those page layouts that have changed. You need those profiles that have changed, and you've got to get those down, and then you've got to commit them into Git. And and so that's why you really have to track everything. I don't. I could go on. on that that this, sounds like but, a. Uh... Herculean task, Jeremy. It's a Herculean task to do what they're doing. Once you get this working, it's actually the same. It's the same. <laughs> it's re- it's repeatable. You, once you have tooling working, it, it works. It, it sounds like it requires it a shift as, in mindset and a shift in in just about everything you're doing. But once you do it, you're you're saner for it. I mean, what's the alternative? You're, you're going to miss so much stuff. You're going to screw so much stuff up if you are not if you're not tracking. What do you and not track profiles and fields and objects and layouts? So how do you how do you do this? How do you what do you do when you want to fix a bug that's on that's in production? So that's master, right? Mm-hmm. So now you need to check out master and do a hot fix on master. Yeah. Well, you're gonna make that change. You need to deploy master to your sandbox so you can make the change in your sandbox and run all tests and see if you actually fix the bug. Well, you can only do that if if your sandbox is at master. That's called right. a Salesforce refresh. A sandbox refresh? Well, if you want to wait two <laughs> or three or four or ten days for it, the, I mean, tr- it, it's it's a it's a difference in mindset because it, traditionally, yeah, 
If we have a hot fix, we refresh, we create a sandbox or refresh the sandbox. Well, that, what if you're not fixing on a master? What if it's on a QA branch? Well, here's the fallacy with what that. If you're fixing something on a QA branch, you can't refresh from production. That's not going to get you where you need to get. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm telling you, if you don't do it this way, you will, or or you just continue with the good old Salesforce happy, what do they call it, the happy soup or whatever? You yeah. know, this, I mean, I can't believe people work like that. That is absolute insanity to me, but people do work like that. I where you just got like a bunch that. of developers in, in the same sandbox. Maybe there's, there's a, a few sandboxes that are shared amongst people and there's no branches. You don't do nope. branching. Nope. You just, you're, you're, you're patching stuff into production, hoping it works. Yep. You're, when, you, when you run it and test it in your sandbox, you're testing it against not the same code base that's, in, that's going to be in production. It's just all, it's a mess. It's crazy. Yeah. It's the Wild West, man. That's and, what that's the world we live in. And yes, I know that. Pew, pew, I know. Pew, pew, and yes, Wild I know, West. I know this is how ninety percent of people do it. But <laughs> that's the way I'm doing it right now. Well, I'm a rebel again. Finally, I don't sell, follow your. Mantra. I think finally, Salesforce is starting to starting to <laughs> down a path of providing some leadership here, and I'm, it's a very um, it's very welcome for me to see that. Well, it's not so much leadership. It's just that there's so much give and take. There's so many compromises. There's so many well, it's gaps. An up, it's an uphill battle to do it right. It, it is. And, and that's that's the problem. I mean, yeah, you can do all this, but then you still have to deal with all this other crap, the stuff that's not in the metadata, the stuff that's in the metadata, but it's it's identified by some kind of ID or, or something that, that prevents it from going into production cleanly. There are so many things that you have to do manually because there's only an interface to do that to enable that feature or modify yeah. that feature yep. with through the UI. Yeah. And go look at them. I mean, and the metadata documentation for the metadata API, it's got, it's all, they always have a, the list of things that you, you can't do with metadata. And it's like, yeah. you know, it's 80 things or, and it's some big list of things and that's all manual still. So this, it's not perfect. And um, even though you knock it, it becomes a, well, uh, pick your poison. Do you do this or do you do that? And, and for some people, okay, that is more it's more saner to me. I can deal with that. Yes, it has all these pros and cons and it sucks, but I can deal with that. Yeah. And then you have the other crowd who's saying, yeah, there's no way I can deal with that, so I'm doing this. I, th- I think w- when I give this advice, it's for people who who already know that they've got to move to continuous integration. They've got to have a sane and predictable deployment process. If you're already there and you know that you got to solve that problem, that this is that's who I'm talking to. Well, Jeremy, if you, don't, I, if you don't really have that problem, or if you're not at that scale yet, or if it's just not that important, or if your if your code base is just small and simple, and you just you know you got a couple of triggers and then whatever, then yeah, this is this would be overkill. Well, what it sounds like to me is Jay's asking to, for access to your secret blog <laughs> that has those, all, all this information. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So next thing he says is, "I'm the problem I'm facing is that when developers create the package.xml, it will not contain everything. This is why this is why I don't manually create the package.xml. I just have my tooling do it." They're they're good at putting the Visual Force and Apex pages, but not the labels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The custom objects, pick lists, and this is why you have to track everything, everything that's that you can put in, everything that the metadata API supports. You really should be tracking because it's you can't tease things apart. These things are interrelated. You know what I mean by that? Like different metadata pieces have dependencies on different metadata pieces, and you just can't pull them apart and say, "Oh, we're only going to track." These types of things. Well, th- this this comes from an environment that I think was created by both sides, both Salesforce and us in the community. We created this divide where config was config, admins do that, development is development, developers do that. 
It's but, not, but it's we're not that both black and white. No, no, what I'm saying is we created this divide. We 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 saw these specialized skill sets and said, okay, you're good at configging. You go do config. You're mm-hmm. good at development. You go do config. Don't, I mean, you go do development. Don't worry about config. We got someone who's good at config. They can do that. And this is actually a dysfunctional way to split up work. Well, it, you it should, is. You should, I we, mean, we, we, I, I try we to... ignored for the year, for years, we ignored the fact that we're both modifying and modifying a system, whether it was with code or with point and click. Yeah. We ignored the fact that we were modifying a system. I still see, I saw this the other day. Someone shows me their Kanban board and it's got the, 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 the lanes in their Kanban board are like config development or, you know, config programming post deployment, right? They're, they're actually not, it's not a flow. No, it's not a single piece of flow. They're not, they're doing anything by stories. They've, they've, they've broken the workup on the wrong dimension, on the wrong axis. Yeah. They broke it up by, the the type of work access, not the by the unit of deliverable access, by the, which is also basically just a story. If you do, if you want to call it a story or whatever, you should watch. You should be able to see stories flow through your Kanban board, not like a config item, then a, then a development item, or whatever. It's it should be the whole story, whatever's required for the story. Might be some database stuff, might be some layouts, could be some security and some pages or whatever. Apex, so a lightning component, right? That should those things should move as a part of a story across. Well, they should, and it, it, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that different people can't do different jobs, but, but the, but the fact is that we kind of created these silos where everything was config and everything was development, and I can config it and I can configure it in production, so that's what I'm going to do, and I, you know, I'll, I'll create it in both places for you. I'll do it in production, I'll do it in sandbox, I'll do it in the staging environment, whatever, and then you go and develop against that. You know, th- it wasn't this cohesive thought process of how do we get all this stuff to move in one direction? It was, I can do this in production, so I'm going to do this, and you you go do your thing because you have to do it in a sandbox. As Salesforce says you have to do it in a sandbox. If you can do it in production, I, I would love for you to do it in production. Right. You know, that that's the mentality that, that we seem to have created with, with this process that we have these days right. in, in, when it comes to Salesforce. And that's not to say that that there aren't people out there who are doing it differently. There aren't people who are doing CI or, or who who have some kind of established process that enables this kind of single flow of changes to the system. But I think by and large, because what? of the way these projects evolve, they they evolve many times from a very simple thing the way to the something bigger. Evolved, right? I mean, there there was only production. Yeah. Right. So that's how Salesforce grew up. That's how its customers grew up using Salesforce. And yeah. but it's just gotten to the point now that you you actually can do things better and you don't you don't have to. But if if you got this team of people and you've got a big project and and their that the productivity of that is important, the ability to hit deadlines, to be able to have the ability to have fairly predictable deployments. I mean I've I don't know, I've got uh, products that are pretty giant that have a weekly deployment that is basically as smooth as butter every single week. It goes, it's, we follow this exact process. You know, there's a, it goes through a QA. I mean, it, the, all the metadata that we generate, whether it's, again, new custom fields or Apex or whatever, it all goes through a process where it, it automatically deploys to a build server. And then once a week we branch off with a QA and that automatically deploys all that. So your test, your, it's kind of, it's a test run. It's testing that everything is done. And of course, then you have, you know, the, the QA process itself where everyone just kind of smoke tests and make sure that, we don't have regressions and things like that. But by, but by that point, I mean, 
it's the production deployment. It's uh, it's it's a no brainer, and and for the size of this, I mean, thousands of classes. Uh, it's, it's a giant. It's a really big org. You know, I don't know. I, I think that <laughs> I can't imagine doing it another way. Because well, I've seen people do it the old way, and it's just painful. It, it is painful, but at the same time, I think I think I think at some point in time we need to figure out a better way of doing this that that is different. I think that's what Salesforce DX is working on, right? And I hope so. And I don't, I don't know if that's going to make it enable us to do the things that we've always done with software development in terms of CI and enable that, or if it's going to provide some kind of new framework for us to do things differently, considering that we're in the cloud, considering that that your sandbox might be on a different version than your production environment. And the only thing you can do is refresh that to, to try to sync them up. I mean, th- there are things unique to the cloud that we're having to deal with. It's not even, that's not even fair. They're unique to Salesforce. <laughs> uh, I guess. Yeah. I, yeah no, I, you, and that, you have to pay attention to those. I mean, I, yeah. I always make sure that, say for maybe one, that all of our sandboxes are on non-pre-release so that they always matches production. Because you will get different metadata from a, from a pre-release org than you will from a... True, but at the, the same point, I mean, the whole reason for the pre-release is that you can test everything and make and sure that are, there are no regressions. We can, but we'll do that on a, in a separate sandbox. Well, that's awesome. You have a bigger budget than I do. <laughs> it's it's a free. It's included. I'm not talking about paying for it. I'm talking about just the resources, times, and, and mental no, investment no. into we it. We save a ton of time because we do. We have this process, and we have we we have this tooling set up. Well, then educate my fallacy, then, because in my opinion, I I'm talking. We're, we're talking about managing some kind of CI process. We're talking about making sure that all environments are are on the same version. Which that's, means probably that's, refreshing that's a, that's because Salesforce thing. pushes just, everything. It's a one-time thing. You get your cell, you get your sandbox on a non-pre-release org, and it stays there forever. Oh, so you tell Salesforce never refresh this with a pre-release? I, I can refresh, but once you're on a pre-release, you you stay on it. I mean, once you're on a non-pre-release, you stay unless you refresh at the wrong time or whatever. But but that's the other thing. See, I don't have to refresh. I'm, I might refresh my sandbox once a year because remember, production is a mirror of our of our code base, of, of what's at master. And that all came from our sandboxes. Mm-hmm. And our sandboxes are constantly kept up to date because, we are, again, we're, we're merging and branching and doing things right. I never have to refresh. Um, there, there are some exceptions. Like, for example, if uh, managed packages, there can be some times where you just, it's, easy, it's easier just to refresh. But that's also not a big deal for me because I can refresh. And yes, I'm getting I'm getting master. And really, I probably don't want to be master. I'm probably going to be on a dev branch. But I just refresh. And once the refresh is done, then I just deploy my dev branch to it. And I've got whatever managed package that wasn't installed in production that I need or whatever. I feel like you're sitting on this wealth of knowledge that I don't have. There's you a lot need of people, to publish no, this. There's, there's a lot of people that are doing this. This <laughs> the exact thing. I didn't invent any of this. All right. I'm not, I'm not saying you invented it, but at the same time, I mean, a lot of us are... are we understand this. We 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 want to do this, but at the same time, getting there is, is difficult. It is difficult. Establishing because... it, establishing that men- mentality across everyone, convincing the the you know business analysts or the admins that they need to do this a certain way. Well, you have to you have to lay out a business case for this and show how why it's going to be so much better. Why we're going to spend less time, less money, and you know have more. We're going to have less less bugs. And and more more you know smoother deployments. This is the cloud. It should be easy. No, no, I don't think anyone said it should be easy. Well, maybe they do. I don't know. Well, I'm, click I'm, some, I'm click some buttons and it's easy. Right. I'm not going to do anything until I see your blog post. But he says he says again back to you know they're 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 good with you know they they put their visual force in their apex in there, but they for, always forget to manually add the labels, custom objects, preferences, the pick lists, everything. That's why don't do it manual. 
Um, so, so they do a deployment, and I'm assuming, assuming it fails because he says then QA is pissed because QA can't, they probably can't even get it deployed actually. Yeah. Um, he says I can't blame the devs either because Salesforce changes so many things it's hard to it's hard to keep track of. Again, I think this, I think this is all about tooling. You really should track everything you can. Um, I mean, I have a process where, and when I'm implementing a feature, I might I might create some. Let's say I create a new trigger, right? But also might need I might need to create a, a field and a workflow or something. So I'll create the trigger and whatever my IDE is. But then I might go into Salesforce UI and uh, create the field, which again, remember, also creates edits page layouts. It, it does Profiles. profile stuff, yep. and I create the workflow. But then because I had, but right before I started that story, I had deployed my my base, you know, like say I'm working right on the dev branch. I had deployed that to my org. So my org is synced up with the code that's on my hard drive. I can actually just do a full pull from Salesforce down to my hard drive. And I get I get that metadata they just changed. I got the fields, I got the profiles, I've got the permissions, I've got the workflow, and I've gotten a new Apex class. And I'm ready, now I'm ready to commit. It's that, it's really, it becomes that simple. But if your code wasn't already synced with your org, then you can't do that because your org is probably out of date. It's probably behind or stuff stale. I can do a full pull and just it, the entire metadata comes out. And only, you know, it's amazing. Only those few things that I change will be changed when I do a get status. He says, has anyone seen a third-party product that given an Apex file will tell all related changes? Well, I just told you how I did it, really. I do a full pull and that, and then I can do a get status and I can see what changed. Yeah. Which is always good to check. You always want to do a get status to check just to make sure that nothing more changed than what you thought because there are issues with when you deploy to Salesforce, like sometimes stuff doesn't stick right and there's weird metadata bugs and you're always going to have to deal with those. He says change sets does this, but it doesn't create a package. I still haven't found a way to use change sets yet. That's just too difficult. Not repeatable. Uh, the biggest issue we face with multiple developers is, is that when they submit a deploy.xml, they miss a lot of metadata. Everyone is good at the names of, yeah. Um, that's how I do it. So I'll be waiting for the Jeremy Ross. I, uh, I mean, I could framework. If it's CI framework, I feel like a lot of people are already doing this, and I don't. I don't have any secret sauce. I, I mean, I don't I'm, think I'm using open source I don't think tools it's for all as this. As prevalent as you think, I think most of us are doing what I'm doing, which is just trying to get by. What Jay is trying to do, which is trying to get by with his, you know, the the team grew. You know, again, again, these Salesforce projects don't start that big. I mean, some of them do. Some of like the big enterprise start that big, right. but most of the time they start out small. They start out with an, a small implementation, a quick start. And you start building some automation, and all of a sudden it starts growing to this big, huge application. And before you know it, you have 30 developers on it, and you're trying to figure out, okay, well, how do we freaking manage this? It snowballs out of nowhere. Right. And and it's it's that perspective. It's it's that starting point. You know, okay, yeah, you started with a fresh org and everything's in metadata and you, everyone knows how to how to do all that kind of stuff. Great. Well, how do you take this project that's halfway through a major implementation, a major build, and get them to that point? Well, if you're right in the middle of something, it may not make sense to implement this right in the middle of an existing thing. I, I don't know. It's, but, I mean, that's a case by case. But see, case that's thing. the problem. That's the problem. You're, you're in this middle middle of this, and you realize, crap, this is a problem. This is not going to scale. This is when we need to do something. Well, maybe so. And I, I, I think that's what most of us struggle with: is 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 agreeing. We we can agree that we've reached a point where we can't do what, we're, what we've been doing because it's 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 not going to scale any further. Right. It's going to be extremely painful. It's going to be a lot of wasted hours sitting here waiting for things to deploy, watching it fail, tweaking something to get it to pass. At some point, it, it's probably middle of the night, off peak. Yeah. <laughs> you know, middle of the night weekend where you wish you're you know watching a movie or playing with your kids. You're sitting here 
watching this deployment chug away because yeah. it takes an hour to run unit tests only to have that very last thing fail and you have to start over. Yeah. And I, and what I guess what I'm saying is that this, what you're describing, that can largely be avoided. I'm not saying it's perfect. There's not everything, you know, it doesn't always go the way you want. And again, there's, you know, there's limitations in the tools. There's, there's bugs in the metadata API that are constantly changing. So it's not that there are no issues, but I mean, I think 95% of those you can get, you can, you can fix. You, you can totally avoid this where you basically just hit quicksand on these projects where all these people trying to people are get different people are trying to get stuff done and there's it's constant clashing it's, everything's out of sync there's no predictability on your deployments that's that's just no way to work man no it's it's not it's, it's tough it's frustrating it costs time it costs money it costs brain cells yeah, it does very stressful all right that's all i got you want to you ready to wrap up yeah, let's wrap up. I don't I don't want to get to this other stuff. I'm tired. Yeah, I gotta run. Take us out, John. Oh. <laughs> Not even to lead up or anything. Just just say it. <laughs> Jeez, I feel like I'm a dancing monkey. John, is there anything you'd like to say to that? Yes. And to that I say good day, sir. <laughs> you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. Wait a minute. We're allowed to have girls in our dorm room? Not girls, Gil. Women. We're college men now. Isn't college great? It's gonna be a great year. <laughs> oh my gosh. That was awesome. Those guys are great, aren't they great?